what happens to me often is I'll write a story and I'll be like, this is so different than everything else I've written. Like here I've written something so (laughs) out of my comfort zone and then all my trusted readers will read it and they'll be like, oh, this is like, this sounds like you. This, you know. (laughs) You're listening to Stories But Shorter. I'm your host, Cassie Jerkins. Today we have on Amy Silverberg. My name's Amy Silverberg, and this is One Rough, One Tender. Diana was sleeping with two men. One was rough and one was tender, but very occasionally the tender one would be rough and the rough one would be tender, and then she was back to square one, unable to choose between them. Her friends told her she had to choose. You must choose, they said. You can't have them both. Why not, thought Diana. They're completely different. Aren't I allowed options? That's why she'd moved to Los Angeles, the land of options. Before this, she'd lived in a suburb of Illinois, and there weren't that many options there. Get married was one, or get a better job at a better university. She'd been teaching intro to studio art and photography in a town that was almost unpronounceable. It was that obscure. She decided to move to the city, as in Chicago. And then she thought, well, it could be any city. She liked movies, after all. She liked sunshine. She liked palm trees. She didn't think of palm trees that often, but when she'd seen them on vacation in Hawaii with her mother, Diana insisted on taking about a hundred photos of her mother leaned against them, her straw hat casting jaunty shadows across her face. That particular vacation was a year ago, one month before her mother passed away. Diana had just turned 28. Her life had become disheveled since then. In L.A., Diana worked for a professional photo booth company. She was the one at weddings and corporate events telling you to smile, smile. Here's a wooden mustache to hold in front of your mouth. Here's a sparkly top hat. Weddings were busier and more exhausting than corporate events, though far more interesting. Everyone was drunker and rawer somehow. At corporate events, almost nobody wanted their pictures taken with a mustache or a sparkly hat. They wanted to go home to their televisions. At weddings, people's eyes were often moist and their mouths loose with drink and the air was taut with a particular kind of expectancy, as though the commitment might be contagious. Diana wondered if guests ever looked at the photos later, saw the sparkly top hat or the mustache on a stick, and thought, ah, yes, I remember that wedding. She hoped the photo might serve as a key to that night, to that particular longing in the air caused by the union of Joseph and Tanya or whoever, the witnessing of two disparate bodies promising to forego any other options. For extra money, she took portrait photos, mostly headshots for actors, because she lived in L.A. now, and that's who needed them, and not just one set, either. They needed options. She tacked a photo she took of her friend Molly on a corkboard in a coffee shop on Melrose, and before long, a man called her asking for headshots, and that's how she met the rough one. The rough one was taking improv comedy classes, but didn't seem particularly funny. He wanted funny photos, though, and this proved hard to do. He kept making faces that made him look deranged. Diana had never seen an improv show and had no idea that she should tell him to smile normally, so she furiously snapped away with her expensive camera and didn't give him any direction. She photographed him against the nubby stucco wall of her apartment building. When they looked through the photos together, he said, perfect, so she agreed. I like your pheromones, he said, all of a sudden, looking over her shoulder at more pictures of himself in which he was a little cross-eyed, grinning doofily. What? Sorry, he said. I just uh, read a thing in a magazine about how pheromones are what attracts people, not a person's looks. This didn't sound exactly like a compliment, but Diana said, thanks. People were sometimes right about Midwesterners, that dogged politeness that followed them around like a smell. 
In her own mind, Diana could be very impolite, even cruel. Maybe only her mother had known this. Cruelty was sometimes reserved for mothers, mothers and spouses, maybe. This is a weird question, the rough one said, but uh, are you on birth control? Hmm, she said again. The hmm was just buying time. She must have been making a face that looked offended. Her thinking face always looked offended because he quickly apologized. I only ask that, he said, because in this study I read, it said that women on birth control can't sniff out pheromones in mates. He said it like a fact, though for some reason she heard it as a come on. I'm not, she began, I'm not seeing anyone. When she met the tender one a few weeks later, he was holding a book called How to Heal with Food. They were both standing in line at a jiffy lube on Beverly. He was frustrated with the auto mechanic, but couldn't seem to say it plainly. And she recognized a little of herself in that, that inability to say just what you mean. She thought he must be from the Midwest, too. It turned out he'd grown up in the Inland Empire, a hot, blank place, he said, by way of explanation. He studied holistic medicine, but used to work in finance. Maybe that transition alone could make anyone tender. They started having sex a week later. In bed, she often whispered filthy things into the crook of his neck to see if she could scare him. He sometimes laughed a little nervously. He never said anything filthy back, even in the spasmy throes of it. Even then, when his animal brain took over, he still had decorum. She mostly learned the dirty talk from the rough one, though when he whispered it into her neck, she was the one to laugh or murmur softly under her breath. It was strange how you could be a different thing to a different person. Perhaps the tender one was not tender to someone else. People were like prisms, she thought, their surfaces changing in a different light. She didn't tell the men about each other. They didn't ask, so she didn't tell. That is not a good policy, her friend Molly said. Just look at the army. A month after she'd been sleeping with both men, she started having these strange erotic dreams every night. Old friends were in it. No sex took place. It was the tone of the dream, smoky, purplish, surreal. Everything moved slowly, even her blood through her body. In one recurring dream, she was sitting between a woman and a man she had always admired, a couple, both professors at the Midwestern University in the unpronounceable town. In the dream, the three of them were in some odd dreamscape, sitting in Adirondack chairs atop a porch attached to nothing in the dark, dark darkness. She was watching them watch each other, though they had to keep craning their necks awkwardly to see around her, and even though she wanted to get up, she couldn't move, no matter how hard she tried. When the couple reached out to touch each other, they'd accidentally brushed their hands across her face, her hair. She woke up always at that moment. She told the tender one about the dreams. He was an academic, after all, and she thought he'd enjoy close reading them. They were sitting with their knees, knocking against each other at a bar called Birds, where fake parrots hung from the ceiling. Surprisingly, he said, dreams don't mean anything. They're just a wacky collection of subconscious thoughts. Maybe he was right. Or maybe the dreams weren't erotic at all, she thought. Maybe they were about something else, about all those weddings she photographed, about longing. She told the rough one this at an arcade of all places, and he said, maybe longing and sex are just the same thing. These men, they continued to surprise her. Finally, the rough one asked if she was seeing anyone else. She had just gotten out of the shower in his studio apartment and wrapped herself in one of his threadbare towels. She was surprised. She thought the tender one would be the first one to ask about their relationship, but he was busy with his PhD in natural health sciences, and besides that, he was timid when it came to asking difficult questions. Plus, being an actor, the rough one had a lot of time on his hands to think about these things. He was sitting on the bed, shirtless, flipping through a men's health magazine, which had a shirtless man on the cover who didn't look all that different from him. 
Sometimes they would have sex before one of his acting workshops, and afterward, while he was getting dressed, he would stretch his mouth into different shapes in the mirror, practicing his vowels. At those times, Diana had to look away. She'd had another life before this. It had fewer options, yes, but fewer actors, too. Am I seeing anyone else? She repeated. It was a stalling tactic. Yes, that was the question. What do you want from me? She asked. The truth, he said. Are you seeing anybody else? Do you want me to be seeing other people? He asked. Then, no, I'm only seeing you. This felt like a trap and she'd stepped into it. Yes, she said. I'm seeing one other person. I want to meet him. No, she said. Why would you want to do that? I will meet him, he said, as though that were the end of it. For the first time, she saw how he might be compelling on stage. Not just his generous height or his smoothed over looks or his full head of hair, but the oddness of his facial expressions and the depth of his voice. He was extremely and strangely convincing. In the days that followed, she wondered if she should warn the tender one. She felt nervous and jittery as though the floor beneath her had become fragile. Who knows what the rough one was capable of, if he might happen upon the tender one unexpectedly in his tiny cubby of an office where the tender one did his doctoral research and where he and Diana once had sex very tenderly. So tender, in fact, that he tried to call it making love, but she wouldn't let him. This particular night, she and the tender one were seeing a play, which was good, because the rough one never wanted to go to the theater. It's like work for me, he said. That's like asking you to take photos of people on your day off. I do that all the time, she'd said, but she understood. At the university in the Midwest, when she taught intro to photography, it was horrible sometimes to flip through the students' work, which sometimes looked like they'd snapped photos mid-walk to school, blurry leaves on the ground, an artless dumpster, a friend driving by in a Honda. When she quit, she thought she'd never take another photo again. She was so tired of looking at bad ones, trying to explain to the students as they yawned or doodled just why the photos were so bad. The best way to hate something is to dedicate your life to it, her mother, who taught history, had said. I've been meaning to ask you, she said to the tender one, once they had settled into their plush, velvety theater seats. Are you seeing anyone else? The lights had not yet dimmed. He liked to arrive on time, early even. Would you be upset if I was, he asked. The way he said it, tentatively, testing, she knew the answer must be yes. She felt hurt. It took her by surprise, the force of the hurt. She liked the tender one, and before they came to the theater, they'd had sex that felt sort of new, not rough exactly, but quick and less inhibited, standing up against his bookshelf filled with natural health texts. Nobody could be all things at once, of course, but he seemed like he could be some of them, many of them. He seemed capable of making adjustments, a little bendy like a wind-blown palm. Well, if you were seeing someone else, she said, I'd have no reason to be upset because we never established any rules. She tried to keep her voice even. True, he said. He was already scanning the program. Are you wondering if I'm seeing other people? She asked. No, he said. I agree. It's none of my business. She sat back in her chair, the hurtness starting to blister. Later, it would be a callus, one to repeatedly press with the pads of her fingers. This whole time, she thought the tender one didn't pry because he was overly polite, part of his intrinsic tenderness. So are you? She asked. Am I what? Are you sleeping with someone else? He paused his lips in an exaggerated way, then felt around in his pocket. Shoot, he said. Forgot my chapstick. She fished around in her purse for a lip balm. Oh, he said, this is glossy. I don't think I can use it. You're stalling, she said. Hmm? You are seeing someone else, she said, and you're stalling because you don't want to tell me. It is my business, you know. I'm sorry, he said. Are we in a fight? I didn't. I'm. 
I'm confused. It's your business, of course, if you want it to be. Yes, he said finally. I'm seeing a woman in my department. I hope you're not upset, she asked. She had an annoying way of interrupting people when she was excited or emotional. She knew this about herself, but never took any pains to stop it. She realized there were a lot of things she knew about herself that she chose to ignore. I was going to say, I hope you're not sad, he said. I never meant to mislead you or hurt your feelings. Diana wondered if he and this woman had sex in his little office cubby or in hers. Maybe in that relationship, the woman was the tender one and he was the rough one. Diana saw now in the way he went back to reading the program with his face as motionless as a rich person's indoor pool that he certainly had the makings of roughness. Maybe it was Diana, something about her that demanded tenderness from him. She thought of that old sentiment her mother liked to repeat, you teach people how to treat you. Diana wondered what the tender one must have thought about her when they first met at the Jiffy Lube, and she asked him where he was from. The Midwest, her voice perking up at the end, a little desperate sounding. Maybe she'd only been homesick. When they slept together so soon after, she remembered seeing the hunger on her own face reflected back in the screen of the iPad he kept propped against the lamp on his bedside table. It was a little feral, that hunger, when she remembered the way her face looked. Maybe the face was even a little scary or a little sad. She'd always enjoyed sex, but it had taken on a different quality lately. She went about it as though she were an athlete or a binge eater with voraciousness. She wished the wish so well-worn it was as threadbare as the rough one's towels that she could call her mother and talk about it. Not about the sex, but about her feelings. I'm seeing someone else too, she would say to her mother on the phone. Who am I to complain? And because her mother had been a good mother, she'd let her do just that, complain. That's human nature, her mother might say. Diana had had the double hads of those left behind by the deceased, a truly good mother. And she knew from being loose in the world now for over a quarter century that good mothers were few and far between. Good mothers reaffirmed the nice beliefs you had about yourself and refuted the bad ones. Good mothers were liars. I think it's about to start, the formerly tender one whispered as the lights lowered. This was the opening night of a contemporary re-improvisation of a Shakespeare play. The tender one had heard about it on NPR. Diana had agreed to go after checking her calendar and seeing that she didn't already have plans with the rough one. And now she wondered if the tender one had asked the other woman first. How did he decide who to ask? How did Diana decide? Her thoughts were a snake swallowing its tail. What's wrong? He whispered. What? Nothing. Your lips were moving, he said. My lips? Yeah, you were sort of talking to yourself or miming talking. Nothing, she said. She turned away from him, purposefully abrupt. Hey, he said, look at me. And that tenderness was back in his voice, a softening. And she turned to look at him, waiting for him to say something that might save the night, smooth it over. You have something stuck in your teeth, he said. Parsley, I think. Good God, she said. I'm also seeing someone else. And then the lights dimmed fully and the curtain slid open, revealing a cast of men and women in blue jeans and t-shirts, one of whom was the rough one. The play wasn't great, at least not in her opinion. The rough one, however, had been a standout, and she thought even if she didn't know him, even if she'd never seen him naked or in the midnight-colored throes of sex in which his animal brain had no decorum whatsoever, she would have still thought him the best. Was he funny? Was he smart? It was hard to tell, but there was a wildness to his performance, a lack of self-consciousness that made the whole audience burst out in laughter as though it was being pried from their mouths against their control. And though she didn't laugh, she felt herself go warm with the secret of knowing him in another context. As for the tender one, he never mentioned her confession, but she felt a difference in him, a newfound pull he must have felt for her. Immediately after the play, he stood a little closer, even, laughed a little louder at everything she said. 
After the performance, the ushers led the audience into a courtyard behind the theater and poured wine and soda into plastic cups. The air was warm, fragrant. The night felt close and touchable. Diana was about to ask the tender one the name of the flowers, giving off that familiar smell, a type of thing he knew, when the director stood up on a fold-out chair and thanked everyone for coming, said opening night was a success. Cheers! Cheers again! He knocked his plastic cup indiscriminately against any cup that came near. Diana could feel her heart beginning to thump. Where was the rough one? The director looked young, also in a solid-colored t-shirt, his hair pushed back, his voice low. Maybe he had also been an actor, or wanted to be. Once, the rough one told her it was embarrassing to say you're an actor in L.A. Why, she'd asked. Isn't everyone an actor here? He'd shaken his head as though she didn't understand. I'm actually good, he said. Most people don't know what they're doing, but I study it. I do know. The way he said it hadn't sounded arrogant, only true, as though he were stating a fact. It's like, don't people make shitty art, he'd continued, or take shitty photographs and tell you they're an artist? And you think, no, I'm an artist. Yes, she had said. She knew exactly what he meant. She used to feel that way, that she was an artist. It was hard to tell now. Then she saw the rough one, the director taking him by the arm and making him stand on the chair. The director said the rough one's name to raucous applause. The rough one waved it away and laughed a little demurely. Oh, he said, stop, he said. The tender one clapped, and Diana did too, loudly, with abandon. She wanted to get the rough one's attention. She wanted to s him to see her standing there, clapping for him while he stood on his chair. They made eye contact, and she felt the blood rush to her face with the intensity of his gaze. She thought about the rough one in bed, that he had good hands, that she always felt as though she were pliable under those hands, pulling apart like taffy. The tender one put his arm around her right then, as though he could sense the heat coming off of her, as though he wasn't so tender as to not feel the warmth of competition when it was standing across from him on a chair, triumphant. Everyone had stopped clapping, and the tender one whispered, You can stop now, but Diana refused. She continued to clap, only quieter. The rough one vaulted off the chair and approached her. Who's this? he said by way of greeting. She said the tender one's name. The tender one thrust his hand forward, fountaining with compliments. How did the two of you know each other? The tender one asked eventually. She took photos of me, the rough one said. He could have said a lot of other things. Some of them could have even been filthy. Diana was struck by his dignity all of a sudden, but maybe that had something to do with seeing him on stage, seeing his actual talent, upright and walking like a Frankenstein monster. She wondered which of the men her mother would have preferred for Diana. The men were now discussing some common ground. Perhaps they had lots of it. Sports? No, the rough one didn't like sports. But the tender one did. Rather, he liked watching them. The tender one also liked going to the theater. And the rough one had just performed in the theater. But Diana knew the rough one didn't like talking about his craft. In fact, he wouldn't have even called it a craft, which she liked about him. She watched the tender one lean into whatever the rough one was saying, his face serious with listening. She'd always liked this about the tender one. She excused herself to the bathroom. Maybe while she was gone, the rough one would talk about the rough way he and Diana had sex, and maybe the tender one would be forced to react. But how would he react? Politely, probably. In the bathroom, two women were in adjacent stalls, talking about the show. There was like one good-looking one, one woman was saying to the other. That's it. The rough one, Diana wondered? She'd never been with someone so empirically good-looking before, for a night maybe, but nothing like this, nothing sustained. She was used to winning men over with her personality, and the very handsome men usually refused to be won over. They knew what they were looking for. They knew it when they saw it. When the women exited the stalls, Diana thought she might know them. 
Then she remembered what her mother used to say, that beautiful people always looked familiar, like you'd seen them before. Who's your favorite? Diana asked the women as they checked their teeth in the mirror, put on lipstick. One was blonde and one was brunette, but they looked similar, vaguely related, though one had a broader forehead and the other had sort of close-set eyes. Still, beautiful, nevertheless. What? The blonde asked. Who was your favorite actor in the show tonight? Oh, the brunette said. The one in the blue shirt, I guess. That was not the rough one. The rough one wore green, which brought out his eyes. What did you think about the one in the green shirt? Diana asked. She was looking at herself in the mirror. She regarded Diana with a sidelong glance. Not sure I'm remembering the one in the green shirt. Diana figured she must have established herself as strange by then. She's very handsome, she said. The blonde laughed and showed her teeth, a flash, and Diana knew this was probably something men worked for, that brief flash of white teeth. Well, in that case, we'll look for him outside, she told Diana. Diana stood for a while in the bathroom stall. She didn't need to go, but she sat on the toilet anyway, her pants still on. In the hallway and in the courtyard, she could hear the women's scoops of laughter trailing after them. She pictured the men outside. Who would she choose? It was impossible to decide when you liked all of the options offered. In fact, it was completely unjust. Sometimes a choice was like a small death. She wanted to have her cake and eat it and have sex with it too. In Hawaii, on the vacation where she took a hundred photos of her mother leaned up against palm trees right before she passed away, Diana remembered her mother could never make up her mind about what to order for dinner. Her mother had become increasingly indecisive as she aged, especially after she had gotten sick, probably because she knew she had less time to eat delicious food and it was a shame to waste what little time she had on bad decisions. That was understandable, Diana thought. Above all else, good mothers are liars because they never prepare their daughters for the inevitable when their mothers will be gone. As Diana left the bathroom and approached the tender one and the rough one, still speaking with their heads bent toward each other, she saw the two women nearby and she held her head erect and smiled at them both. The women were talking to the actor in a blue shirt. Diana approached the two men she was sleeping with and was suddenly reminded of the dinner she and her mother had shared on their last day in Hawaii. Fried potatoes, yams, salted fish, a suckling pig in the center of it all, in other words, a feast. When you say getting out of your comfort zone, like, what do you, what does your writer brain go to? Like, I'll just set it in at a circus or is it like a different character? Um, You know, like what's different for you? Probably writing in a male point of view. Mm. I write like mostly um, female protagonists. Uh, I tried to, I tried to write recently like a man doing a bank robbery. Like I'm Mm. not... I don't write a ton of action or violence. Yeah. And then still when friends read it, they were like, yeah, yeah, this sounds like you. You just, <laughs> there was a robbery. <laughs> and, um, I, my students will always be like nervous to read stuff as they're writing because they think they'll imitate the writer too much. Mm. And, um, for the most part, I so disagree with that. I'm like, you should read as much as you can all yeah. the time. And even when you think you're imitating the writer, you're not, you know, yeah. unless you're such a good imitator. And then, yeah. um, but for the most part, I'll be like, yeah, I mean, this sounds like Lori Moore. And everyone will be like, no, it doesn't. Like you yeah. wish. I don't know. Really that's that. like Lori Moore. Yeah. That's a writer I <laughs> admire. But like in music, when you read like who the music's like the musicians influences are, Mm -hmm. it's like when you say it's like, Oh, I can kind of hear that, but it's so different. Yeah. You know, um, like, especially like when everyone's like, we're all like inspired by the Beatles and then like you, you're like like, hundreds in there. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, And I've been inspired by things where, um, it seems strange that I would have been inspired by mm -hmm. that totally. And I just think you should be reading if you want to write, 
if you want to write, the number one yeah. thing you should do is read. <laughs> well, it's like I love that dig with the rough one where he's like, I don't I don't go see plays and stuff. And yeah, I'm just like, yeah. dude, that's your crap. Too. Yeah, like, yeah. You'd, you'd want to like just take it in. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also like that he's a good actor, not bad. <laughs> right. Well, I was thinking about that too in terms of, um, I mean, I, I'm interested in writing about LA mm-hmm. a lot. I've yeah. lived here all of my adult life. Mm-hmm. I grew up in Southern California and I think, um, you, if you live here, you know, certain things that, mm. um, outsiders don't know and they can yeah. be interesting to like unpack. Yeah. Even the idea of improv. I was like. I would like to, you know, I don't, I've, I'm <laughs> bad at it, but I think people are good at it. The mm-hmm. people who are good at it, they, they're sometimes interesting characters, you mm-hmm. know? Yeah. It is interesting to be obsessed with something that most people are, have no idea what it is. Yeah. yeah. It's also interesting. It's like, um, I like, I get annoyed. I think anytime you feel like you've worked really hard in a subject and mm-hmm. someone asks you a dumb question about mm. it, you're like, ugh. And I'll be like, do you do you read James Patterson? And I'll be like, no, like I don't read James Patterson or about stand up. Yeah. Like, My favorite comedian is Louis C.K. And then you can be like, no, okay, all right. But I think then I do that. When I meet someone and I don't know about the mm-hmm. field, I'm like... Um, oh, yeah. I'm sure with writers, I'm asking the worst questions. Oh, well, <laughs> well, it's like I meet a musician and I'm like, my favorite is Ja Rule and Joni Mitchell. And they're like, okay, dummy. Together? <laughs> yeah. And I just think it's so true that it's like every field has um, has that. Like yeah. has, you know, people like who are experts mm-hmm. and... Um, are resentful of other people who don't do it well they mm-hmm. feel or you yeah. know and um it's like I think about that all the time like I I'm protective about writing because I've done yeah. it so long and um but then also it's like who am I to be the gatekeeper of it like <laughs> yeah let <laughs> people read 50 shades of gray if they want yeah that resonated with me in the story when he's like embarrassed to say that he's an actor because like until you experience any success that people understand you're seen as crazy right like you're you're crazy it's like improvisers at the clubhouse are crazy and then it's like oh but now they're getting success so one of those things that i think kind of anyone can say that they do Mm -hmm. um but if you're good at it you're like no i'm i'm different (laughs) i think same with writing is like Mm -hmm. i'm always talking to people who are like yeah i'm a writer too and i'm like oh but i but are you? Because I work really hard at yeah. it. And it's like, who am I to tell them who, you know? But I think if you're like a doctor or a lawyer, nobody can be like, yeah, I'm a lawyer too. I love arguing. Yeah. They would have had to go to mm-hmm. law school mm-hmm. or med school. It's like, um, yeah, that's the difference is, uh, mm-hmm. but you know, everybody should be allowed to, to pursue. Yeah. Yeah. You want everyone to like express themselves creatively. Yeah. 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 And yeah, and then there are the people that are really talented that are just so humble and shy with their work. Yeah. And you're like, no, share it with the world. Well, it does seem there's some theory. It's called the um, God, the Dunning-Kruger effect. Mm-hmm. Have you ever heard of that? Mm-mm. Where it's um, people who are really uh, good at things tend to think they're worse. because they have a point of comparison Mm -hmm. whereas people who aren't good at things aren't able to compare themselves so they're always just like I'm great (laughs) and I feel that way whenever I meet someone who's like I'm a great comedian or like I'm a great writer I'm always like you must be terrible like where is your (laughs) yeah where is your sense of um you know 
innate humiliation and (laughs) (laughs) self-loathing so uh this specific story it was there a particular like reason for writing it or was it just did it start from i want to write an la story you know i'm um I feel like everybody enters stories differently. Mm-hmm. Like I know that some people are like premise enters, like mm-hmm. they have an idea or um, an idea of a character or something. And I'm really like a voice writer. Mm-hmm. So I just had this one sentence, this idea of a woman sleeping with two men, one rough, one tender. And I kept that sentence for in a notebook for like a week. Mm-hmm. And then I just followed it where it would where it would go. And wow. I had, I was in a workshop and I had a deadline, so I had to get the story <laughs> done. But I, uh, yeah, I mean, that's lately actually, I'm that um, way of entering stories is tricky for me because I'm trying to write a novel. And mm. so if you start a novel without an idea, necess- like yeah. not a, not a, I have a, I have a like preoccupation that I'm always, preoccupations, plural, right. that I'm always interested in interrogating, but I don't have like an outline or an yeah. idea of exactly what's going to happen. So it's like nerve wracking to try mm-hmm. to follow characters through, you know, the darkness with only your headlights on, yeah. so to speak. And um, yeah, I'm trying to figure that out. If you attempt to write a novel that way, do you feel that you have to write a while and then when you start to, it gets too dark, you have to kind of step away, maybe think about it for like a, a I'm, while before yeah. coming back? I'm also just like, I'm kind of a a writer of brevity. Like I always mm-hmm. want to get off the page. Mm-hmm. Um, even my longest stories are like relatively short. I notice that some people it's like, uh, they, they're just sort of like barfing onto the page mm-hmm. and then they have to cut back. And I oh, admire yeah. that because I'm somebody who like has to eke it out. Uh-huh. And like, I barely seem to get to the end. Yeah. And so, and also when I write a story, every time I sit down, I start, I look at the beginning and read everything that I have and then, write a little bit more Mm -hmm. and you just can't do that with a novel or else you're barely moving forward if you're sitting down every time and getting to the starting at the beginning so I'm just trying to find ways to like trick myself Mm -hmm. you know some of it's like really short chapters so Mm. it feels like I'm able to write briefly still yeah um it's kind of like I'm and I'm trying to just move forward did you seek out any advice going into like writing a novel like um like what is some good advice that you've gotten about it that you that you like or that has seemed to work or just sounds good I mean, I've sought out so much advice. At one point during a dark time, I was like sitting in Barnes & Noble reading like writing a novel for dummies. And I was like, what am I doing? At some point I had to be like, okay, you've taken all, you've gotten all Mm -hmm. the advice possible. Like you just have to do it. Um, I've gotten good advice from people like Roxanne Gay. She's a, she's amazing. She's amazing. And she, her thing was always like, um, you know, just write the parts that feel like hot to you, Mm. you know, that have heat behind them and that feel exciting to write. Don't think too much about where's the beginning and where's the, I just retweeted something by that, that Anne Lamott had tweeted about, Mm -hmm. um, just, just write passages, write scenes, right. That seems to be the. Amy Bender has given me good advice too. That seems to be the um, general consensus mm-hmm. of like, uh, don't worry about starting from the beginning yeah. and then getting to the middle. Just just try to like collect everything mm-hmm. and then and don't think too much about, wow, I'm going to have to do a lot of work in the revision process. Yeah, yeah. I know there, I think it's with artists and particularly with women is like there's this like belief that it needs to be perfect. Like, oh. Yeah, which it, it's like, it's like learning as an artist, like, oh, this is stopping me. Like, this is not helpful. That self 
yeah. criticism and mm-hmm. self-judgment. Amy Bender says that she doesn't have writer's block, just writer's dread. <laughs> and it's not that she can't think of anything to write. It's just like getting to the page is yeah. so difficult because mm-hmm. you have so much stuff to battle. And there are definite like strategies I have for, mm-hmm. for getting to the page quicker. Mm-hmm. Other times I'm, you know, it sounds awful. In a lot of ways, getting on stage for stand-up feels a little bit um, less... There's less noise in my head about it. Mm. I mean, that's yeah, still like... But that's amazing because there are people that would be more terrified to do stand-up. I mean, there are other things yeah, in yeah, stand-up yeah. that make me, you know, <laughs> insane. <Yeah>. But <laughs> getting to the page in in fiction is like, yeah, the mm-hmm. hardest part. That mm-hmm. The blank page is... Oh, yeah. Not even the blank page. The page with some stuff on it is... Mm-hmm. Often I get like three-fourths of the way through a story and I'm like, this story is never going to end. There's no way to end it. It's mm-hmm. terrible. It's awful. I'm the worst writer that ever lived. <laughs> and then I, <laughs> I have a deadline and then I'll get it done. And then at the end I'm like, this is pretty good. Stories, but shorter is produced by Jeremy Schmidt and hosted by me, Cassie Jerkins. Campfire.